Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, soap fans and true believers. This episode was recorded live on Stereo, a new app that lets you in on the conversation. Download today and stay tuned to this channel and our social media to find out when the next live taping is so you can call in and let us know your thoughts on the soaps. You're listening to Believe in Soap Operas live on the Stereo app. I listen to Adam Carolla all the time, and he had started using this. And I'm like, what a better way to get people involved and get people live? Because that's sort of what we used to do at After Buzz, and that was fun part of it with uh, going on YouTube. And well, I still do that on some things, but I wanted to do something different because so many of us, we don't want to get up and get ready and, and do all the hair and makeup. But is there a way to do it live <laughs> like it was years ago on the radio? Oh, here we go. Stereo. <laughs> well, I'm excited. I love learning new technology. And so, you know, I am using my earbuds so that I can more naturally speak to you and not have to, you know, sit here and with all the, the accoutrements and like you said, stare at the pictures and make sure I'm recording. So if anything goes wrong, let me know if the sound doesn't sound great. And I will move to a more traditional phone call posture. It'll be like I'm in the seventh grade again, under the yeah. covers, chatting with my friends while my parents, hoping my parents don't hear. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. And that's the thing, too, is like you say, it is a little different recording without the video because you are a little bit more focused and it enables you to listen more. Because I know even myself, even though I'm very conscientious of it, doing different types of things is if I'm having to look at people and, and think about how I'm looking on camera, I'm so much more distracted than I would be just talking to somebody. That's why I like oh, absolutely. audio only. <laughs> One of the things that I do is I turn off myself because you'd think after, let's see, I first, I was first live on TV in 96, maybe 96. And I still to this day, see things and want to make changes and then you and then you have to devote part of your brain to figuring out okay how do i do this while they're looking at me like how do i change position or how do i adjust the light or how do i zoom in without making it too obvious that i'm you know indulging my vanity by by fixing the picture so this should be great and this reminds me coming you know i'm a little bit older than you are coming from a time where everything was an internet dominated of that intimate connection you make when you would you know i was joking about it earlier but set up on the phone, phone talking about a, a TV show you guys had just watched or uh, or an experience you just shared or something you were excited about coming up. Uh, it was a different, simpler time, but I think the conversations were more authentic. So I'm looking forward to getting going. 
Yeah, and like you say, that's something I still do with people when it comes to the soaps because I share that, I mean, whether my mom is just sitting there watching it with me as I'm still here with her in Texas or my grandmother, we talk in text or other people as we've made friends with that will talk in text in, in person or anything, just one-on-one -on -one about the stories. I think that that's, and that's a big part of it. Yeah, I think that that's the, mm. the key to the enduring power of the serial, whether it's in the daytime soap opera or whether it's, uh, I tell people this all the time and they don't believe me that sitcoms and hour long dramas didn't used to be serialized. You know, you would, the, the, the norm for an hour long drama, whether it was, you know, Hill street blues or Cagney and Lacey mm -hmm. seen elsewhere, uh, LA law was that there were a few, you know, continuing storylines that, that might pop up from time to time, but they were not soaps in the serial sense. They they didn't have storylines that uh, that did that picked up mid in the middle at the beginning and ended in the middle, and you'd have to keep watching. And I often say that in the same time period, we're during the OJ trial in the mid '90s when the daytime serial was was waning. I saw a lot of of shows, including sitcoms like Friends with the Russ and Rachel drama yeah. and, uh, and shows like Chicago Hope or uh, ER start to pick up a lot of the soap opera storytelling because it was a surefire way to get you to tune in tomorrow. It was a surefire way to get you emotionally invested in the characters in the story in a different way because the only thing they had going for them then was no DVRs. You know, so if you, if you, if you missed it, you had to wait till they reran it later. And so that was the only thing that guaranteed you made an appointment in television. But by adding that other layer of, you might miss an essential piece to the whole story by making uh, the switch to a storytelling format that now more closely resembles Grey's Anatomy than, uh, yeah. than you know, saying elsewhere uh, with the case of the week, uh, you found that people became more invested and people began to watch or make time for to the exclusion of everything else, your story. So that was a, a marvelous time for people who are fans of serial storytelling because Melrose Place went from season one, which yeah. was was definitely a serial, but was more episodic, to a traditional high-stakes emotional investment serial. And then things like ER began to have more and more storylines of relationships that continued and evolved. And then Friends, I think, was, is the quintessential example of that time of beginning to weave in rather than a situation a week uh, relationship drama, will they or won't they, uh, you know, you no longer had to put to be continued at the end because that would became the default. Yeah. And, and to think about one of my favorite, you know, considered sitcoms, how I met your mother, how that is essentially the whole show was exactly this is telling this story it's all connected and there were so many cute little easter eggs and that's sort of the peak of that but like you say even though i wasn't alive when most of the love boat was airing i've been watching the love boat and i love the anthropology of tv again i'm a listener to adam yeah. Carolla and dr drew and they were watching it and it really made me interested and like you say the only through the love boat because it's different guest stars every time yes you have yep. these regular cast members but they're just simply there to serve the plot the only thing yep. that is con consistent through that show is that dr bricker is a serial rapist <laughs> right <laughs> i mean it's like that guy i mean anybody and even john ritter in the dress 
which I, that I've always uh, had a crush on John Ritter. <laughs> but I think that I think that that's one of the reasons. Uh, I don't say this to defend the topic that we're about to discuss, but one of the things I like mm -hmm. about stereo is that people will be dropping in and dropping out. This might not be a topic that they naturally would have sought out. But I think that particularly when you discuss it through the lens of, of the anthropology of soaps, when you discuss it through the lens of, you know, the fact that they used to get Super Bowl numbers and, and how, yeah. how the reception and appreciation of, of the daytime soap opera changed as the economy changed, as more women went to work, as more people moved away from break room jobs, you know, where people would gather in the break room or to their lunch hour to watch something, as people started had alternatives, the, the internet, which did not exist as a daily household or a daily experiential thing for people until I was in my mid-20s, maybe late-20s even, uh, you know, when there were three channels versus, you know, a full complement of cable channels and so on and so forth. And then things like the OJ trial, which eroded, which just as cable was coming up, the OJ trial took over all the channels and for an extended period of time and people got out of the habit. And so the history of television is intimately tied in with the history of the serial and the history of the serial is intimately tied in with the history of, of Americans or the culture in which those serials are thriving. And certain things I find all the time interesting, uh, everything from say time slots. So for example, I spent a lot of time working and living in Europe. I was born there and graduated high school there. Uh, and their soaps come on in the evening, where where we would typically call it the game show time. Yeah, you know the that when you're making dinner, when you get home from work, uh, time. And so they've endured because they don't require people to make as many choices as you know. You don't have to make a proactive effort to watch something because it's already on. You know when you're on, it's the time when you're changing your clothes or catching up on your day or preparing dinner. Uh, and they have a lot more male fans. You know, they have a lot more, you know, you can sit there in, in Britain and discuss something going on on, uh, on EastEnders, you know, with, with a, a businessman just as often as you might find a random housewife on the tube. I wouldn't say that the audiences are the same. I would just say it, it's a lot more likely and there's a lot more respect. And I think well, that, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I do agree that there's probably a lot more respect over there as a whole with the European and how they view the soaps. But in this country, we've seen it swing back and forth, just like everything. We have. And with today, I believe, is the anniversary of when Luke and Laura got married and is still considered the number one thing that ever happened in daytime. So many viewers, mm -hmm. like the largest Super audience. Bowl numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. Then that's what you say. It's like so crazy to think about that now. But where I disagree is I feel like we have swung back to having more male viewers. I believe we did back in the Luke and Laura days of the 80s, the heydays. Right. But I know just as many, I mean, probably more men I know that do I talk to about soaps. And it, because it's sort of skewed into, like you say, women going back to work, things are different. We have the internet. So the internet is almost in the soap's favor these days because we a have more options and b can watch stuff when we want it and so yeah oh absolutely i think i misspoke yeah, yeah. <laughs> right or i think i misspoke slightly i don't think mm -hmm. i wasn't so much saying respect yeah. from from men uh yeah. or the average citizen i think that soap operas in america suffer from a lack of respect from the media establishment and the networks 
you know, there's still an old way of thinking that's rooted in the nineties that it's housewife entertainment. Uh, but absolutely, you know, my father was the general hospital general, right? He was the one, you know, when he was, it came on in the morning when he got up in Iraq every single day. And so it was on and he had watched it with my mom back in the seventies and eighties when he was a lieutenant and they used to watch it on videotapes that were sent to Germany. And so, yeah, you know, my dad he started watching it again. Watcher as yeah. well, but he's probably so not the best stuff. example because he <laughs> loved to wear women's boots and clothes and <laughs> Well, that was my, the only boots my dad wore were cotton mm-hmm. boots, but I will say that, even to this day, but, um, but I will say that, you know, this was so much so that when he went back to the Pentagon and was finishing a career in a very senior role there, he would do his correspondence during General Hospital. So they would turn, you know, you have the big panel of TVs in the mm-hmm. big offices. Yeah. They would turn them all to General Hospital and he would close the door and he would sign the things he needed to sign and review the correspondence and make sure, uh, you know, they'd give him the stack of things that required his review and sign off. And he would do that with General Hospital on in the background. And when he retired, they gave him a signed script and a, uh, and a headshots that they had written to, I don't remember who the producer at the time was. Uh, they had written to them and said, hey, you know, John Brandt's retiring from the military. He's a big fan. And and so I think that the content has always been there, but I think there's another thing to say, just like we're in the age of, of bromances and healthy, non-toxic, you know, masculine friendships and these types of things, uh, father, son, you know, it was interesting. They had that picture of uh, Joe Biden hugging Hunter Biden and it went viral because a uh, conservative commentator said, oh, nothing creepy or disgusting about this or something like that. And, and it felt like the entire internet clapped back with, you know what, this is, a beautiful father-son relationship. And if you can't see that, that's on you, you know, and I'm really sorry for the relationship that you didn't have that you don't understand about a father hugging their child. And, and I think that there was a lot of push and pull and today we would call it toxic at my age. It's a little weird to use what feels sort of like buzzwords, but I respect them Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a good way of communicating. In the 80s and 90s, well, the 80s was bright. The 80s was colorful. The 80s, you may you may look back on the 80s yeah. and see a lot of David Lee Roth. I mean, paint. he was yeah. all long yeah. hair, <laughs> leggings, yeah, my dad uh, never neon, let, neon. Never cut it. <laughs> yeah. Right, and you know, and it, you know, the 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 Chippendales traveled from town to town. People were still wore speedos, oh, yeah. and then something very strange happened. You know, we elect that ultimately sort of coincided with politics and this is exactly where it might meets up with soaps uh in the sense that we then after having sort of grandpa figures as presidents for for 16 Mm -hmm. years at that point um we elected a young president who played the saxophone on the arsenio hall show with a wife and a headband who said she didn't bake cookies and i'm not i'm not here to talk about you know whether people like or just like the clintons or hillary especially people who weren't there at the time um but what happened was there was a backlash two years later where Democrats lost Congress for the first time in something like 32, 36 years. And the rise of the religious right, the moral majority, and suddenly it's funny, pop culture and fashion went with it. We, we, we got a much more conservative government. We got a much more combative government. And you got talk radio, right-wing talk radio really took off. And, and it really, I think, took off as an entertainment product more than anything else back then. But what happened was suddenly people began to say, you know, the sissification of boys, you know, Clinton wanted to repeal uh, the ban on, on gay service members, or people started talking about, you know, gay marriage. And so that's why a lot of the things like the Defense of Marriage Act and all of those things happened at the time. And slowly but surely, we saw that reflected in our entertainment. So 
we began to catch up with the United States. We, the United States began to catch up with Europe at that time. So shows like NYPD Blue and even our daytime still started to have rear nudity. Oh, no. You know, that was a real thing. You know, as the world turns and Guiding Light had rear nudity. Um, you know, uh, NYPD Blue was famous for its nudity. Yeah, uh, Sipowitz's ass. <laughs> right. Well, Sipowitz's ass was a, was a culmination of years and years and years of, of, of you know, shall we say, more conventionally attractive actors. And people were saying, hey, if we're going for realism, let's do it. He said, why not? You know, but, <laughs> but I mean, from the pilot, you know, all these things happened. And, and it was interesting because suddenly things that were associated with women's entertainment, suddenly things that were associated with the objectification of masculinity, uh, suddenly things that were associated with non-traditional gender roles, there was kind of a last gasp during that time. I, I, it was a wonderful time of innovation. It was a wonderful time of economic expansion. The internet was exploding. So it wasn't a bad time to live, but it was a very different time. And, and one of the things I think was, it was exemplary of that was, for example, suddenly we went from all these multicolored briefs and speedos and everything to black and white boxer <laughs> briefs. You know, and those, I mean, I was in college at the time, and that flannel. became sort of the only <laughs> thing. Yeah, the oh, flannel, flannel on top of yeah. the t shirt. Yeah. Always smile yeah. open on top of the teeth. Women became shapeless. You know, the the look at that. You look at your baggy pants, and you know, even urban. So it didn't really matter mm -hmm. whether you were whether you were whether you were alt or or urban or whether you were, uh, you know, sort of this. Uh, there was this uh, sort of look, and I and I, someone's going to write and immediately be like, "That was in the two thousands. Sorry, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the mind the mind gets yeah. stable after forty. But um, but. What happened was it was very interesting. And so art began to express itself in different ways. You know, you had, you had, you know, grunge in Seattle and things like that. But, but in general, what happened was our government, you know, in the beginning of the 90s, you had Tipper Gore, who was a Democrat, you know, in the late 80s yeah. on rap music. People moved away from that. And suddenly Janet Jackson was like the culmination yeah, of all of that. It was, <laughs> it was like the thing they needed. It was like, yeah, yeah it was the thing they needed to say, see, we told you television. And it was interesting. Soaps, which used to confront, you know, all kinds of topics, you know, whether it was, whether it was you know, abortion or uh, class differences or uh, nuanced issues of, of race or, you know, early, early at the time, yeah. I think you were getting, uh, you know, issues of homosexuality and you had the Zarf storyline on, um, on, um, on, uh, on All My Children, which was the transgender storyline. Uh, yeah. Actually, it was. It was. I think it was actually. I don't even know if it was a. I don't think they ever went so far as to say it was a full transgender storyline. I think it was just at that timing. No, no, it was a gender identity storyline. Now that I'm remembering yeah. correctly, it was. Um, and, yeah, he and, uh, but you know, but it, like, yeah. right, right. You know, the the who I am inside, and all of those things yeah. that disappeared, and so soaps became more timid. Soaps became more timid. They became less bold, which meant they differentiated each other less. I think there was a reason that the bold and the beautiful continued to sell all over the world because it, it knew its identity and its identity wasn't really social issues. Um, yeah. Whereas the ones that had, just crazy. you know, the ABC soaps, you know, the ABC soaps, really, the Parker and Rebel soaps used to deal with class. And, and you have valiant attempts here and there, which is not Luke and Noah and these types of things. But you often, for example, like Kyle and Fish, would see the interference of, of 
in the 2000s after this period, the 90s, yeah. where everything got reset. You began to see, I mean, you used to turn on the TV in the 80s and you would see Ridge lounging by the pool in the Speedo, or you would see uh, Jamie Franklin, Lawrence Lau, you know, crawling up into, into a sleeping bag in, in, in blue briefs while Anne Hayes is in a, is in a really lacy, um, you know, broad panty set and these sorts of things. And they felt racy. They felt racy the way the cover of a romance novel feels racy. But by the yeah. time, by the time, I joke now that on General Hospital, they have a single pair of, uh, of loose black boxers that mm-hmm. they pass around, you know, that everybody yeah, wears um, the Perry same, Shin the same and pair. Will DeRay used to yeah. joke about that too, that it's like, yeah, oh, I mean, you got the boxers so, of this time. Yeah. Right. It's like this, it's like they bought a multi-pack and that was it. And uh, although my dog disagrees and, uh, or, or she firmly agrees that it should be condemned because she's growling. And, uh, and, and I think that it was, it was fascinating is that soaps now, if, if we see a resurgence, I think it all ties together because as primetime became more serious, as primetime became more like daytime, as, yeah. as the freedom of the internet and the prestige shows on cable became more affordable and and once again, everything serialized, and they began to tackle social issues, and they began to be, and they began to get praised for it. Soaps were still scarred from the beatings they took. You know, uh, you would never believe that, that half characters just run around in briefs, which makes sense that they would, because it was a medium that, especially at the time, was primarily targeted to, you know, housewives, working class women, and gay men. You know, it made sense. Yeah. But you wouldn't know that the women used to wear beautiful underwear and people would write into the sub magazines and say, Where did she get that that teddy or where did she get where did she get those bras? And they would say, Oh, Victoria's Secret selling it or whatever. Right? Because suddenly they became so timid. The storylines became attempts, sad attempts or abbreviated attempts to address social social issues or challenge the audience. And they collapsed. I mean, Grey's Anatomy now it deals with those same things. Scandal has hotter, hotter sex scenes. You know, the you know, Mad Men dealt with things in a different way. And daytime remained, and this is probably the executives more than the than the writers, to be yeah, fair. It's probably the sure. network execs, you know. And it's definitely not, I don't think, the writers, because I know enough soap writers and I know enough uh soap producers to know the and actors. But the idea that you don't challenge the audience. They became too much alike. And I think they're finding their way now. I'm hoping they're finding their way now uh, because there's something very valuable for those of us who, who for me, when I was very sick in my, in my early twenties, you know, and you're at home and they become sort of a substitute family, people you check in with every single day, you know, for the, for the housewife, for the, the, the guy who's, who does shift work and sits and watch something on his break. And and so maybe the pandemic has given us a chance to reconnect with that. So it's 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 a golden period, and I we're going to talk about all the things we're seeing. But we're in such a strange time of upheaval, of politics, of of you know, in a way, it's another sort of sexual revolution because now we're having to do the really difficult work. You know, it, it's very easy to say something that was just given a jump away, or people were doing already is okay to represent. But now, how do we feel about something that we have no exposure to, such as such as gender identity or or asexuality or or a, a woman being having full sexual agency? How do we feel about that? You know? And and I'm hoping that soaps stay on that path and understand that they have to bring something to the table. They can't just keep coasting along as they have because it's not that they haven't changed from the sixties and the seventies and the fifties when they were when they were great. The problem is they're not enough like 
what they were like when they used to get the great ratings. They're almost like little clones of each other. And so, but I think we're getting there and I think the pandemic provides us an opportunity and I'm really excited to talk about the storylines. Yeah, because like you said, the pandemic has provided this opportunity and this is where I'm so proud of the soaps. And I do feel like we're finally getting a little bit of respect from the media, which let's face it, doesn't really matter at this point anyway, because of the way that they've Mm -hmm. sort of sold their souls to a lot anyway. But it's nice. I mean, I have the TV Guide cover with Sonny and Carly on it from a few months ago. The soaps were the first thing to come back. And they've come back all with a full force. I will say I'm enjoying some more than others. Like, I do hope that when it comes to general hospital and politics, that people don't feel the way about politics now that we've won as they do about general hospital. Because there's a lot of folks on the good side here where general hospital is better than it's been in years. They are really listening and they are really working. And I see a ton of potential and I'm really enjoying it. And that seems to be the consensus for half of the people. But then there's still that other half that just nitpicks every little thing. And it's fine not to like stuff. I don't like everything. But it's just the constant negativity that we thought would go away when things were better. Yeah, I think that that's the, the one. The first thing I always try to remember and remind people is that Twitter is not reality. So I think we mentioned this the last time we chatted too, but I think it's worth saying over and over again. When I was laid off, I worked in a store and I learned, and I always say everyone should work retail or, or food service uh, or, or manual yeah. labor because you learn things about life and about people that you can learn any other way. Long before yeah. we had Karens, okay. you know, the concept of the Karen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anybody who's ever worked in a store and my Roby supervisor knows exactly one thing. People are more likely to fill out a comment card or ask to speak to the manager if they're upset. If people have a wonderful experience and you brighten their day at the checkout line, they'll smile all the way to the car, but they aren't stopping to, to tell their kids to hold on and, and, and risking being late to their next thing to fill out a comment card and drop it in the mail. And now it's even more so when you've got to sit down at your computer and write. So, so naturally, we have to acknowledge human um, human nature in the sense that people are more likely to stop and take time out of their everyday or their their normal to complain about something. And that's me too. I try not to be a negative person, yeah. but that's me too. I, I, I'm much more likely, and that's why I'm, I'm hoping that we can emerge from this political climate. I said that the other day. I said, I can't wait to talk about everything else in my life because it's the things that outrage you that you, that you need to almost reach out sometimes and make sure that other people feel the way too. Um, and, but with television, with soaps or anything with a strong yeah. fandom. So there, there are several genres, comic books and, Oh, yeah. Supernatural, even. It's one thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I always joke with (laughs) Carrie Gonzalez. If you haven't uh, spoken with her, she's fantastic to speak to. She's a good friend of mine. She was uh, Sky on All My Children. And she she, uh, has has the distinction of being in in the two episodes of Supernatural that are constantly rated both one of the most popular and one of the least popular episodes. (laughs) Yeah. The, The Unicorn Man, the Rainbow Unicorn Man, and the Spiders episode. And oh yes, she. Yeah, and bugs so she, is one of the worst episodes. Right, right, and so, but it's funny because she's sort of a legend. Yeah. She's the one who's in the shower. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so she she has a real experience with fandom in general. You know, fans who are dire yeah. to the end, or fans who hate you, or as whatever. And she has really wonderful insights on fandom. You know, and and 
for some see this as well, that when something is so important to you, first of all, when something is so important to you, you want it to be good. Uh, we also have the human nature uh, idea that if we don't like something and people online, you know, are agreeing with us, we must be right. And therefore, <laughs> it makes us angrier at the writers, or angrier at the producers, because everybody feels this way and, and clearly don't without realizing that over time, your group, your group online is self-selected to be more like you, you know? Yeah. Uh, it. it, it it's interesting. You don't tend to stick around with people who yell at you or disagree with you or things like that. In your base group of people, people who went to the same school, work in the same place, or come from the same, uh, you know, background or economics, this also makes people, the initial people you follow and the people that you're attracted to following like you. And, but I sit there and say, okay, let's just, so, you know, don't pull in the rest they used to, but let's just say, let's just say two million people, you know, are watching right now. You know, of course, there's nothing on at three o'clock anymore, but you know, four o'clock anymore. But but let's say two million people are watching right now, and a hundred are writing on Twitter right now about how much they mm -hmm. hate, you know, Peter August. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a good example if we're talking about you know people who are not able to take a horse, kill it, and then beat it on Twitter. It doesn't matter that the concerns are valid. The frustration, you know, because there were very valid criticisms about. That oh, yeah. the way it was done. Um, it's just that they expect a well, hundred people wrote about this. I got I got a hundred likes on this. It must mean that everyone feels this way. There used to be a time where you could say if they could quantify if they received a letter and then they received so many letters at the network based on the effort it would take for someone to stop and get out paper and write a letter and pay for a stamp and put it in the mail. It represented X number of viewers. That's not true well, online because someone has to have access to the internet. Someone has to have access to the internet during the day. Someone has to have access to the internet during live shows. Someone has to have the time or the interest. So not all tweets are created equal, whereas a letter someone wrote within a week of a show airing was largely equal. Most people had equal access to, well, you know, to the post box. Most people had equal access to the platform. And they used to really value focus groups because, and this is where I mm -hmm. believe that why ABC for sure quit listening to certain things because of the backlash of one of their focus groups and decisions. What about Dan Gauthier as Kevin Buchanan? I mean, the internet yep. went up in an uproar. And this was the big, this was before social media. This was when we were on the message boards on Soap Central and finding out that his focus group was what decided him staying or going. And everybody was really upset. So ABC, well, I think, learned I their lesson then and tried to do different avenues. Well, the problem is, too, is as someone who's planned plenty of political focus groups in the past, is you can build a focus group a certain way and you'll get a certain perspective. I guarantee yeah, you ABC like building a was, not, was not building one that represented all of America, all of the things they were necessarily what they were doing. And because because I remember this well were that most of those focus groups in entertainment at the time were based around advertising. So what do women 18 to 34 want, not what does the majority of the audience want? And also something that kind of bothered me is one of the biggest examples, this is not to say that Laura Wright is not exceptional, and I can't imagine anyone stepping in as the adult yeah, Carly. Yeah, she is Carly to me. Now. Yeah. But I will yeah, never forget, Jennifer Bransford had been on maybe two or three months when, they, when, a focus, when their focus groups and their internal discussions said, oh, my God, she's a failure. She's killing the show. So she's got to go. And they immediately then began a, you know, an extended, very secretive where they asked 
actors like Maurice Bernard and Steve Burton to screen test with people secretly behind their back. Yeah. You know, and, and it was interesting. She was still filling out. I mean, she literally, if you may remember, and this is, you know, this is not, she, Tamara Braun's character, Tara Carly, went up and saw Reese and Sonny in bed together. And, yeah. and Jennifer Brands, and the next day on Monday, Jennifer Bransford had a shot at her downstairs. She literally stepped into the middle of someone else's story. You know, she hadn't had a chance to, to have a story that had been written for her strength. And by the time, the final month, where she got actually quite nice reviews, where she played her breakdown, her emotional breakdown, Carly's sexual abuse, and, and all those things, and the you-know-what-I-want, the famous you-know-what-I-want scene where she comes down the stairs and her wedding gown completely out of her mind, she was getting good reviews, but by then it was all done. They'd already announced that Laura Wright was, was coming in. You know, Maurice Bernard had spoken about how difficult that was. Uh, you know, to secretly go behind Jennifer Branson's back. And I'm saying there is yeah. no way in history that a controversial recast of a very popular character that you will ever... Tamara Bond was still having people organize actual campaigns where they sent things to the studio to get her fired, <laughs> you know, when she replaced Sarah yeah. Brown, you know, at, at six months. I mean, I mean, at two or three months when they decided that there is no way if you replace a beloved, popular character, there is no way you're going to win the audience over in two or three months. Now, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I don't know what, but I do know that I was told that the focus groups didn't like her. And therefore, and what happens is then you get something that I studied in my master's programs, which is confirmation bias, which is once you yeah. think that something is true, everything that looks, even, everything becomes support for it. So, for example, every comment on social media, every time you get a bad letter, see, see, we're right, see, see, you know, we know. And that's just not a way to do that. And Kyle and Fish ended the same way. Of course, do you think when Agnes Nixon told her most controversial stories that had a focus group them, especially at the beginning, you know, yeah, or in the, yeah, the hardest part not... of the middle. Ellen yeah, Holly pretending we... to be white, you know, passing yeah. for white on One Life to Live. Yeah, it, and you think about that and, and think about all the input and how some of it is so damaging. And I know yes. that we can think of this as a tale of two exits since, I mean, it's pretty well confirmed mm -hmm. that we will have Will DeVry and Emmy Ryland exit. And this is what we're talking about confirmation and how, like, a lot of people mm -hmm. really need to study cognitive behavioral psychology, like right. what my master's, Absolutely. you know, was focused on, because it is about changing a perception. And I feel like people do that because Emmy is a beautiful case of someone sure. who, like you said, has been chastised since the beginning. And right. the same people that were doing it so upset. I'm like, What's confusing to me is many of these people have just decided on her side the whole time, even though if mm -hmm. we had all the time in the world, we could go back and find these tweets. And say, it's about confirming your belief. And sometimes these right. beliefs are two different things. It's like, hey, well, we you know hated her here. But now that she's leaving and they've listened to us, now we're mad. <laughs> and now we're going to confirm it here. And it's like, what's happening? People are crazy. Well, what I want to do is I want to step back to address that one. I want to step back to yeah. the days of, oh, my goodness, it just went out of my head. That's what I told you guys, being over 40. Give me one second <laughs> to pull it back up. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to address that, and then, I'll, and then I'll, if I remember, I'll circle back. Um, but I know with, I have like 10 things I, think, I want to circle back to, so I get it. As the, I, should, I really should be keeping notes. But, you know, as, as I fault in many ways, 
the writers, not yeah. not necessarily it this set of writers, any. but but I yeah. fault I fault the executives and the writers for this because for both because I do believe now let me let me be clear I have to be upfront that I have you know a light social relationship with one of, with one of the people we're talking about so you know I don't want to uh, you know that may affect that may affect how I perceive this. And I and, and I want to be careful with what I say because I have a little more insight now they feel about it. But what I would say is is when you make a mistake or if a writer makes a mistake, some things need to be undone or something. Yeah. And not not in the oh we're going to bring Jake back alive one day. That's just a back from the dead story. You know that wasn't to re- <laughs> yeah. rehabilitate Luke or do anything like that. Um, it was a mistake. It was a miscall. And as a writer and as an actor and as a producer and as a comedian. You and I, we share all of these hats, and we know that sometimes you just make the wrong call, right? Yep. Sometimes you just make the wrong call. Something sounds it just sounds better in your head, and it doesn't land. You know what? It was a mistake for them to have Julian try to kill Alexis, try to kill Alexis. One hundred percent. At, right, at the time, can... on paper, yeah. it felt like great drama. When it was acted out, it felt like great drama. But no one understood that in twenty eighteen or seventeen or sixteen or whatever it was that. The audience today would perceive it a certain way, and it doesn't matter if you sit there and go, well, there. So they gave him a reason he did it. Didn't change it. And it yeah. damaged them, and it really put people like like Nancy Grom in, in a bad position, whether I don't know whether she felt this way or not, or, and, and the female writers and anyone who's an advocate for female empowerment. And you know, and, and you run up against abuse. It was very similar. You couldn't, you couldn't rehabilitate Tom the Rapist today. Um, because... Nope. How are you going to preach these things and have Alexis go back to a man who abused her. Sure, he was being blackmailed, sure, but he could have told her he chose to abuse her as a way in his weakness. And and they didn't understand that something that would have been great drama once upon a time didn't work. And the way to do it was to sit down and say, how do we get out of this mess? And sometimes I think you think writers and producers say, we'll give you an explanation, we'll do it, and we'll just wait it out. Or we'll tell you what to think or to feel. And so that's what they did. They said, Olivia made him do it. Yeah. You know, what, you're not over it yet? Fine. We'll make you want it. Julexis is a great example. Because if you want a focus group, rarely, I have not seen in a very long time, the kind of popular, spontaneous mobilization for a super couple as I did with Julexis. That, yeah. That's some old school soap fandom right there. And, and I think and so it's my, because of mm-hmm. their age and how great they I agree. were at the I sexy. Agree. And I feel like most of the audience really related to that. And, and it gave them hope because they're probably around their age. And that was what I gathered from mm-hmm. in talking to fans, because this was when we were doing the After Buzz at GH sure, um, sure. or GH at After Buzz, a uh, Freudian slip there. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that... I totally understood. That's why, like you say, that was their biggest mistake. But it's not to say that they couldn't have done a better job of redeeming him on down well, the line. Because they, they had they so didn't. many things that they just <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. That was the thing. You put him in therapy? Yeah. You put him in therapy? You give him... You, you give, not like Will didn't yeah. have the acting shops to do it. Yeah. To really work through why he was, why he made the choice he did, and his shame. And his utter shit, it's like when a person who's been drinking yeah. or a person who gets over anger management issues, that shame they have at the person they used to be and the forgiveness they beg for. You know, it they already knew Julian. He wasn't a tough mobster anymore. So that's fine. He's Charlie. Yeah. Well, 
Let him do yeah. that. Let him be haunted by that. Let him believe he's not good enough for her and have yeah. her be the only one who can reach him because that empowers her. Instead, he kept rescuing her. And they just didn't understand that, honestly, if the show isn't willing to call it abuse and Julian himself isn't willing to admit to an abuse, then he's no worse. He's no better than, than your ex-husband who gaslit you and still makes excuses for it. And that's not Will. Yeah. And that's not Julian. They didn't. They didn't write. They didn't do the work yeah. to allow Julian to do the work on screen. So it, you know, it's farewell and good, and it hurts sometimes when you see that ex-husband being a great husband and father to his new wife. But you still deserve well, the like, apology. Like right, though, and still, Elizabeth. Yeah. Exactly. He did yeah, the work. You know, and that was yeah. because they made him a. They had to rehabilitate two rapes. You yeah. know. So yes, they and, did the storyline thing, which was to give you a reason it happened yeah. in the story, just like they did with Julian and Olivia. But then they did the self-loathing. They did the, the self-forgiveness. They did the, yeah. you believed, you know, well, and a certain, knows, you know, the percent of the audience yeah. that was willing to, that yeah. he was not the same person. And, and that's where I'll say that great examples mm -hmm. of them, these same writers for the most part, although the work with Franco had been laid out before Chris and Dan, but the, Franco and Valentine both, and now Ava as well, not yep. just the men, have all been redeemed. And we had that moment with Sonny talking to about why. Yeah. yeah. And with Franco, it's like, I don't mind that Jason still hates Franco. It's actually funny because one of my favorite lines was when Franco, I have brain tumor. What's your excuse? Right. You kill people right. too. It's like we've done the work with Franco. And Franco has like his. And that's real life moments. too. Some yeah, people exactly. forgive me, some people don't. Yeah. And it makes. I'm only mad that Jason and Ava hate each other. It's yeah, that should have been a good friendship. And, and, yeah. Right. And and I'm telling you, you would have gotten years of the same way it drives Carly nuts that Jax and Sonny don't hate Brenda. Yeah. <laughs> you would have gotten years and years and years of drama out of the fact that Jason's like, you know what? She saved my life. She's my friend, Carly. You're going to have to accept it. And Carly always having to, with her insecurity and, and, and you know, of having to accept that Jason had a friendship with Ava, having them literally in one conversation say, oh, she was involved in Morgan's death. The, the, the details are kind of fuzzy. And, and him say, okay, I hate you. That's, you know, plus yeah. I'm tired of people hating women. You know, you give me yeah. a reason. Jason and Franco have a reason to hate each other. You know, uh, but I think with Julian, they never did that. And then they didn't do any favors because they constantly had his children hating. And, yeah, and, and so... Sam's sourpuss with Julian is understandable in one way, but like today's sure. episode was just very much like this is Lucas's moment, and and they've just not really done Sam favors because she'll be like coming to Julian for help, and then in one instance, just like oh yeah, and so it doesn't make sense having his children. But see, they forgot the Erica Kendall in one way, right? Yeah, exactly. The the Erica and Kendall principle is after a certain point, you resolve it. It is delicious to watch people hate each other and, and, and resent each other out of pain, whatever, but it's tiring after a certain point. It just becomes a broken record, right? So Julian and, and Alexis didn't move forward and Sam and Julian didn't move forward. You know, if Jason was still rejecting the quarter mains, it wouldn't be interesting. And the fact is at some point, the kids either needed to to learn to love him because we are guided. One of, one of the true principles, you know, I'm a writer. Um, and one of the true principles of writing is you have to guide people into a world somehow. Sometimes it can be through description, but one of the tried and true ways is through other characters. Uh, you know, Oz, the HBO series, 
it's a very gritty, inaccessible world, as my friend just said at the first time. This is the worst prison oh, yeah. ever. Um, <laughs> you know, but what you do is you have a normal middle class guy who drinks too much that everyone can identify with him in his life. That's the premise of the show. He goes to this prison, and as he discovers that world, you discover it with him. Uh, the yeah, secret that life of Maloney. That's the key to everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, definitely, definitely halfway through the first season. You know, he was recurring. Yeah. And um, yeah. And and he was redeemed. Talk about someone who was supposed to be a one no bad guy who was later oh, redeemed. Yeah. And and the point is, they never had redeeming. Doesn't mean you make them good. It means you no. have the audience understand why they did what they did. And then my problem is is the number of times, and this is not a knock on Mo, because again, actors only do what the writers write for them. But the number of times that Sonny spent, you know, verbally abusing women, you know, yeah. and and intimidating women and threatening women and doing those sorts of things, all of those things certainly. I mean, I, I remember how many times did he throw glasses over somebody's shoulder and then right, well, while the woman cringed, you know, Tamara. Yeah, that just was, Claudia, was kind of like everything signature... that happened with right. Claudia was abuse. Right, you know. And Claudia and, and, brought that up at least, but you know. right, and that's the thing. It's but it was, but it's and, and and it's a bit like what Mara says when people get on her about Connie. Is she says, "I've never understood why people side with Sonny on Connie Falconeri with Connie, because they're both mobsters. They have both silenced people who were threats to their organizations. Yeah. Sonny shot his own son through the chest because he was going to reveal something key about his organization. Ava did not shoot Connie out of jealousy." Ava did not no. shoot Connie out of out of girl shit. You know, it was Ava shot Connie Julian. because she was going to reveal that Derek was and Julian Jerome and threaten their organization, which is something that Sonny has done with his own child, but the whole town forgives Sonny. And, you know, to be fair, I think we've seen more nuanced writing in the current writing. Yes. So yeah, what I would say about Julian... So that's good. So what and I would say about Julian... Karen. Yeah, absolutely. And I did like that that came up. What I would say about Julian and... I mean, about... Sorry, sorry, but Will and Emmy is that I do believe it's a financial decision. Uh, yeah, I, um, I think it I is do, mostly now, due now, to that. Right, I just so, don't like the cognitive dissonance of fans. No, and I completely too, agree. Too and also, I don't like the idea... I also don't like the idea that, that... And this is me personally, but I don't run the show. I don't like the idea that they... She is Luke and Laura's child, you know? Um, she plays Luke and Laura's so child. so much better. Um, yeah. Right. She is, and she's being written much better. It's so funny. I mean, yeah. people are writing, you know, has Emmy Rollin always been this good an actress? I'm like, she hasn't gotten this material. Yes. You know, they, it's not she's floating. The material is right. bad, yeah. but she but was But now that it. she's <laughs> playing this material with Dante, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's endearing. Some of, of the flirting they do, some of the insecurity she has, some of the comedy that she's oh, always been good Sonny, at on Young and the Restless she was, that they didn't really Yeah. Do. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and the same thing with Will. He's getting the best material he's ever had. I believe because it's so nuanced. When he when he was negotiating with Cyrus and yeah. and uh, and Cyrus said, "Well, you know what will I? What you know what do you want me to do?" And he says, "No." And then he and then he he's so shaky and he says, "What what you w will do?" You know, and and there was a lot going in there because you give an actor the work. I think, and this is a common complaint about General Hospital, and I always get nervous because Will made this point earlier on when when yeah. he was still Derek Wilson. And there were all these rumors he had been let go. And he says, you know, these are people's lives when you so cavalierly speculate about whether or not they should have a job. 
you know. But yeah. what I would say is the general hospital has a recognized problem. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of people that people aren't incredibly invested in. And so the idea that you feel like you have to, their younger sets continually fail. And their younger yeah. sets continually Although, fail. Although, except the teenage set is good. Yeah. Like, we have Yeah, the teenage set right now is great, but they're it's great, great for yeah, a very but... specific reason. It's great for a specific reason that they never really got right. They hadn't gotten right since Georgie, Maxie, Lucas... Um, Brooklyn and those things, which is you care about. I'm not, I, I'm 43 years old. I don't care about a kid unless I care about their parents. Does that make sense? Otherwise, I, yeah. that's not true. That's not true in life. It means that yeah. it's true the in the TV first, show, whether though. or not yeah. I'm, well, whether or not I'm going to give it, like I'm going to give it my full attention at first. So I, I love, for example, Cameron, who's had to grow up without a father, having the relationship. In fact, I just want him to start calling Franco dad now, you know. Yeah, um, he's had I think that I think that's a really powerful moment. Yeah, in adopted families or for a person who's never had a father, I think it's such a powerful moment. You know, when someone says, "Can I call you dad?" and I think those have been, you know, or or when you know when Jason first the first time he said, "You know, you're my mom," and it, after so long of calling her just Monica and acting like they weren't related, yeah. he doesn't call her mom right now. But when Drew started calling her mom, yeah. that was a big deal. And so I think those types of things have power. <laughs> right. But I think that, I think that right now, Brooklyn, Chase, yeah. Michael, that group is interesting. And, and I'm like, Willow or Sasha will pick one. That has nothing to do with Caitlin McMullen. There's nothing to do with Sophia. It is everything yeah. to do with the fact that just pick one. You know, right now, unless you were planning on making either of them Nina's daughter, and even then Nina is kind of a, mm, and I'm really surprised. So for example, who doesn't love Cynthia Watrous, right? Cynthia Watrous is, is a self-legend. Yeah, she's great. But but that was a natural place to let Nina go. She was not essential to the canvas. And so she was a high-paid soap vet who was doing magical work. But if Michelle decides to leave, that was a natural place to rest Nina and see whether you really need Nina. Because the loss of Nina frees up a whole lot of budget. The loss of Michelle Stafford frees up a whole lot of budget, right? Yeah. Um, and so right now, I, I know what they're doing because I've just been around the, the, the economics of this so long. If, if the rumor that Julie Berman's coming back is not true, if that's not true, okay. what I think they're doing is simply by cutting two mid-grade, somewhat expensive vets, um, you know, you basically, you could hire a, and I don't know this for a fact, so don't quote me, but, you know, you can generally have a, have a Willow and a Sasha for the price of, of, of a Lulu. You know, and and if the economics still works the way you know it used to, and but sometimes a one Lulu is more powerful than two girls who don't have connections to the camera. Yeah, you know, and 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 sometimes so what you have to do is you have to think about it. If 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 you could achieve the same savings you're achieving, they say, well, what if we had to get rid of Dustin? Well, the truth is, people want Lulu and Dante together. So as much as I love Mark, who's amazing. And yeah. I like them on, on one life to live too. Yeah. Brody. It's not a loss for General Hospital to lose Dustin. You know, it is not a loss for General Hospital to lose either Willow or Sasha or both. You know, it's it's a loss of, 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 of potential because they're cute storylines. I like this. I like that. But if you're sitting there saying, do I like Lulu? <laughs> you know, if it's a choice between yeah. that. And, and, and sometimes I get very confounded by the idea of, and, and what usually ends up happening when I, when I talk with people later on, um, 
socially you know, years after the fact. And I'll say, but your character was so popular or whatever. And, and they'll say, as I understand it, because what happens is once writers leave or once once the executive who hired you left, they're free to tell you, okay, here's what really happened with the network or here's what really happened with whatever. And it's such a small community. You start to realize that someone was either in love with a certain kind of story they could tell or they were just looking for the fastest way. So someone says, you know, cut 100 credits from the budget. I can't remember which sci-fi uses credits instead of dollars, but you know, <laughs> let's just say cut a hundred credits. Yeah, from the, the Mandalorian. Well, does. I can. <laughs> uh, I'm going to use two fifty. Thank you. I'm going to use two fifty. Yeah. Okay, I've got two actors who make fifty done, but you could also make it by taking one who makes seventeen, one who makes twenty-five, taking this one who makes who makes thirty-five, and putting them on recurring, so you only have to pay them out the time, and so on and so forth. But that's more work, you know. And if you have this yeah. awesome story about death, one of the problems that I had. Uh, with some soap writers over the years is they love deaths. You know, Joel Farron oh, Phelps yeah. and... They um, all want to have that. Right. And Guza and uh, Pratt love <laughs> high-stakes oh, yeah. deaths. You know, so what happened was, but who? what makes a high-stakes death? A quarter main, a beloved character, right? So by the time mm-hmm. those four, you know, were done, three of those three were done with their, their various combinations and tenures on the show... We had decimated the entire core family because if you need another high stakes death, well, I don't want to just, I don't want to kill off a Sasha. I want to kill off a Lulu. You know what I mean? I don't know if she's really being killed off, but what I'm saying is, you know, it's, it's to me, I get there's pandemic math to be done. I get there's all of these things to be done. But the one thing I would do too is I miss is Ron over a days of our lives when he was in the hospital. He loves to rest characters, which allows you to afford a lot more of them. He'll just send them out of town for a while. And I know that Christian Alfonso reacted poorly to that. And that may have been either, either she was kind of already ready to go, which sometimes that happens. Yeah. You know, sometimes she you're ready to go like and you just it. need a reason. Yeah. Right. But also it could have been poorly communicated to her. You know, it should have. I remember when Sean Kanan uh, quit General Hospital and jumped over the Bold and the Beautiful. Uh, it was a big deal because he hadn't been on in a while. And, and I liked his relationship. with I liked what they were doing with AJ and Liz quite a bit. But yeah, I, did I remember from... I remember Frank and, and Ron both defending themselves and saying he was over his minimum. You know, he had yeah. already made more money than his contract said, but we used him a lot. You know, he was being used like a front burner player, which means now we have time for him to be off screen. And that allows everybody to get front burner time as opposed to. So, yes, there are periods of time where you don't see your favorite, yeah. you know, and but, that's but everybody gets. Sure, but everybody's front burner, as opposed to a situation where you have someone who they're burning off their minimum. Let's say for the audience who doesn't know what that is, that could be that your contract says that you will be on three air shows a week or you're guaranteed to one air show a week. Sometimes I'll be watching and I'll be like, oh, burning off their minimum because the person's doing nothing. You know, they're not moving. I would much rather you save up all those and the mutual agreement, you know, the contract has to allow it, play them heavily. And then have them yeah. go off for a while or have them just recede to the background so that they get something worth their time and worth their talent. And but for some actors, it doesn't, you know, it's the idea that I'm not working. I haven't worked in a while. People are gonna forget me. You know. And and I remember thinking that was so unfortunate because I really like Sean. I really like Sean and I really uh, you know, as, as a viewer, really like yeah, Liz and AJ. Yeah. And when he went back yeah, to bold too. and it was so vocal, you know, all everybody was in his orbit was saying, you know, this is because Frank and Ron screwed him. And I don't know if you felt that way at all, but you know, these things take a life on their own. So I don't want to, I felt bad because I've watched what yeah. Brad Bell has done, which is when Brad Bell loses interest yeah. in you, you're done. You, don't, you can be Sarah Brown. Yeah. 
you know, you you could you could be a straight up soap legend, you could be a movie star, but you know, and, and I'm not gonna knock Brad because he's had the number one soap in the world for, for a couple decades. But what I'm saying is there's no more guarantee that you're gonna be front burner for a longer period of time. The only difference was on General Hospital, I was pretty sure AJ would come back hard once they finished burning off the time that they'd already used. On bold, yeah. when he writes you off, you're just done. Until he decides to write you back a few years ago. And you can be you can be Kristen or, you know, or um I've forgotten Leslie Case, Felicia, you know, or these people who just come back for parties and things like that. And then who knows, maybe like ne- next week. Felicia will be back for a major arc for six months, but you just know when you're in the bold orbit, unless you're part of that core four, you're not really guaranteed job security. You know, I guess maybe Clint is in there now, but it's, um, but I think that hospital um, is much more like days of our lives these days with the rotating and you can tell, and it's funny though, because like they had uh, sidelined Nina and Jackson, that story, Mm -hmm. and then Michael and Willow, which some of these were people that they complained they had too much. So it made sense for them to sideline. But we've also had Nicholas and Brooklyn sideline. But it's funny to me how I very much miss seeing Nicholas. And I very much see see Brooklyn. And I do think that we're going to get... Yeah, and then you're happy to have... But that's a great thing. You start to miss people when you have time to miss them. (laughs) Do you know the only time I really love Sonny? I'm I'm not a Sonny hater. But the only time I really loved Sonny was when Ron was hiding him. Because Sonny would be, we'd see different sides. Sonny would do unexpected things like Ava. He would do things like do comedy. You know, those scenes at the prison. Maurice Bernard is funny. He's so funny. funny. He's great. And and, and that's not normally something Sonny would be able to do, but put Sonny in a a situation where he's like, I can't believe I'm in this fucking situation. Uh, That's that's a time when, and and where he doesn't have to be performative, you know, gangland boss because he's a prisoner. Suddenly, Sonny's inner snark can come out. And, and it was fun to see. But yes, that usually meant that if you play that many big vets at once, that that's an expensive six weeks, right? And now yeah. you're going to now you're gonna have to, to pull back. I understand that that was difficult for some of those actors. But what I will say is I really miss Sonny. And when he reappeared after being, after being backburnered for a little while, I was so excited. So I wonder if this is, this is the right model, but they're not yeah, communicating so. it well. Because see, you know what I'm saying with Brady and Kristen on Days of Our Lives, Brady went away for a while. Ron does this yeah. well, but I think if you can communicate it to people well in advance so they know what they're doing and it doesn't lead to any of like, oh, wait, am I not being used because I'm not good enough? Is, am I not being used? You know, and they say, yeah, this is the model we're going to be using. very <laughs> sensitive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is the model we're going to be using. Here's why. You will be back. And historically, people start to clamor online for you to return. And it gets so exciting. And you go, oh, so-and-so, I haven't seen them in forever. You know? And, and, and even if and it's just a week or two, it really does right. work. Or like like with Sonny and Carly both. Yes, Laura and Maurice are the leads, people. That is yeah. just the way the show works. And they, I don't know why that's confusing to some. But yeah, I don't they get, are the I don't get angry show, because but, you know yeah. who the leads are. Just like Patch and Kayla yeah. in the 80s. You know? And... Now, I will say, Ron shows tend to be the most democratic. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the sense that Ron doesn't necessarily have lead characters, which could be very hard for people who invest. Yeah, I would agree with that. People talk about pets, but really, they'll be rested eventually, too. And, I mean, only on Ron's show does the Black family like Eli and, and Lonnie yeah. and, 
Theo, or do they temporarily recast because he wants Theo there? You know what I mean? Um, he built up. People forget. You know, he he's had he's had some missteps with with um, with race and ethnicity, but he's built up a lot of ethnicity on his shows when they weren't there when it wasn't well, there he's before. The only person who acknowledges Asian characters. <laughs> oh, maybe he should consult true. on YNR. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely true. I think also having having Asian people behind the scenes helps, which is another reason what what are. Victoria Rowell has been saying that if you have diversity in the right, I'm not saying Victoria Rowell's approach has been right every time. I'm saying that this point is 100% correct and people were not listening to her. That if you have diversity in the writer's room, diversity in the, in, in the network uh, executives suites, diversity in the producing things, diversity among directors, you're going to get, um, you're going to get a product that feels more authentic. And, and, and in some ways, I credit a lot of the shows YNR was a great example of this, but I think you're seeing it right now in a different way uh, with British people. With if you don't have it behind the scenes, then giving the actors so that Tony Gary freedom to adapt yeah. their lines to be a little bit more authentic. Because there's nothing worse than watching someone write a line that's supposed to sound black and put it in the black family's mouth. You know what I mean? And yeah. and I and I marvel. I either say, look, either Days has a British person. So I used to work in England. You know, I spent a lot of time working in England and I worked with, I had a business partner and a very good friend who was British for 20 years, who I spoke with almost daily. And Emily O'Brien's character speaks so authentically British, not just what she's saying, but also I love where her. she pauses. Yeah. Where she pauses. Yeah. Um, so the British do this very annoying thing. <laughs> Sorry, um, it's really not annoying. It just, it takes you a while to get used to when you first move over there. And it's, they ask questions that are redundant. They have no intention. Okay. So they'll say to you, like your boss, your new boss will say to you, oh, Paris, that's where I went for vacation last Christmas, right? Isn't it? And you'll say, I, I honestly don't know. And they'll say, huh? What? What? Well, of course you wouldn't know. You weren't there last year. And I'm thinking, but didn't you just ask me? And, <laughs> and what I've noticed is Fanola and to a lesser extent, and Emily O'Brien put those kind of questions in. Well, an American person wouldn't even know to write them, you know, into the thing. Yeah. Like, you would have to really be thinking. You would have to know British people so well. I know British people, and I spent years for clients translating things from British English to English and back again. And I wouldn't necessarily think to write them in. I'd have to go back afterwards. Uh, the way she used the word mental, like a lot of, um, a lot, you know, the British people say cheers. And a lot of Americans think yeah. they mean cheers like, like, um, like uh, you know, bringing glasses as um, opposed to just like cheers as right. an exit yeah right or 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 goodbye because they often yeah. end yeah. um conversations with goodbye and i've heard people use it really yeah. inappropriately i'm like what do you think it means and i'm like it means thanks guys you know yeah and, and those are little mistakes that you eventually catch if if uh this is a total aside but like the jack reacher books are written by a british guy writing american an american guy and he often makes mistakes yeah. like calling a garage a car park or saying yeah. so-and-so is someone, like, I have a sister called Jennifer, as opposed to I have a sister named Jennifer. We say that, but we don't say it as our standard way of doing it. And, uh, yeah. and, all, and Emily O'Brien's lines are always flawlessly British. Like, flawlessly. And, and, and it reminds me of the Winters family on The Young and the Restless, who were flawlessly Black. They felt the reason black people may love Maybe and they love the barbers and the winters is they felt like a black family when they were together. I will say that um, Curtis and um, Curtis and um, oh crap, uh, Aunt Stella, 
or Jordan. Yeah, well, y'all sell it for sure, Jordan, yeah, TJ. Yeah. The, they TJ, feel, yeah. especially the original incarnation, but that's because with, with the, the two recasts of Jordan and TJ, we've mostly seen them in work environments. But they yeah. feel like a black family. Their ways they talk to each other. I'll never forget when Shamar Moore said to um, Victoria, no, to, uh, to uh, no, it was Victoria Ralph, uh, Drew. He says, suck your sucker now. And that was something that was very mm-hmm. common then, but hadn't really jumped over yet. And and I remember thinking, did someone actually write that? You know, because if if say Jack had said it or Ashley had said it, it would have been terrible. It had to be said by Shamar, and it wouldn't have been said by yeah. Neil. You know, that's something so specific that there's a certain kind yeah. of, of of person. Neil carried himself who, who, differently. Yeah. Right. And and understanding how to write black characters differently. You know, and and understanding where they might have a chip or they might do a line reading a certain way, and. And that authenticity means a lot to me. I've always thought that it was, it's very interesting. You can tell that Camilla is Hispanic and, and, um, Galen, of course, I'm, you gotta be a hardcore soap fan to keep up with me, guys. Sorry. Uh, On Days of Our Lives, uh, Camilla is Hispanic culturally and Galen is of Hispanic lineage because there are so many things like the way she, she does sort of a Latin temper and sort of things that yeah. really are. And, and a Martinez, who has also played her father on, on one like to live yes. as well, like will pick up on it right away. And, and it was very similar on passions. You could tell the actors who were Hispanic and the actors who weren't. Uh, and for a while, that was a weird thing on passions where I think most of the, the Fitz, Lopez Fitzgerald family in the beginning were not played by people who identified as Hispanic. Yeah, we love Lindsay Hartley, but... <laughs> right. Well, no, I mean, and even I, this Greg Bond played blame Hispanic actors. on y right. <laughs> It's not his fault. Well, this is but... why I, do. I never blame yeah. actors for taking a job. I never blame actors for yeah. taking a job, and I never blame actors for things their characters do, because people say to me, I just directed a movie that I wrote. Do you know, it would, it would take a lot for me to be okay with an actor coming up to me when we're in the middle of doing production and being like, I want to redo this scene. It's not really what you've been hired to do. So they're going to have to ever, I will always yeah. listen because of, I'm me. But in a, in a situation like Dave's where Ron lives in the Hamptons or lives in New York and, um, and, uh, and, you know, Dave's a shot. The actors are in LA. You know, over yeah. In Vic. yeah. You know, or there's danger sometimes like what happened with Tony Geary and Emma Sam's where they change a line because they don't believe it's true. And they're so certain as actors that, that Holly never yeah. met Bill Ecker. <laughs> and then it ruins everything. You know, I mean, I mean Ron will yeah. sometimes say that isn't how it was written, <laughs> you know, and they like, did. So it's a very it. dangerous thing. They did it. <laughs> right. It's a very dangerous thing for actors to sort of say, like, I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. On my film, uh, there were on, on the first on the com- on the comedy that I wrote. It was funny because there was a scene where one of the they're in Olympic Village and one of the skiers has to get is breaking down and he's and he's really upset. And another character crawls into bed with him and. And it's sort of like awkwardly, like, you know, like tapping him there, there. And the actor was like, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. When I wrote it, it was based on everybody having double beds. Now you're in bunk beds. Of course, you're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, because that's a very different thing. Yeah. You crawl into a bunk bed with a grown man. You know, it's, 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 it's a whole other thing. It's, it's too much space, invasion of space. On a double bed, it would not be at all, you know. And, but they were coming to me with this whole thing. And it was so funny because one of the characters, actors who I really love, but he said to me, um, you know, my character wouldn't do that. And I tell this story, I probably told it the last time we talked, is I'm reminded every time I hear Tristan Kay, who said, you know, like a young actor, a young actor who won't be named, it won't be named, came to him and said, you know, my character would never do that. And Tristan's like, it's very simple. 
um, they would because it says so right there on page 84. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's how I feel. So I don't necessarily, as frustrated as I get sometimes when, say, Anna has to say to Liz, what is it like to lose a child? I can't imagine that pain. And I don't know how to deal with it now. Yeah. That Robin's gone. Uh, well, I want to scream and come through the TV and say, you lost Leora and it was the best work of your entire career. Yeah. <laughs> your entire career was, was, was when, was when David rushed in there on all my children and Anna lost Leora. Yeah. But she doesn't know if, for example, it's Alex or if it's an oversight by the writer or if they're planting something that we don't know or if the Prospect Park lawsuit yeah. means they can't even mention, you know. And so it's not necessarily yeah. the... So I don't fault an actor for saying or doing whatever's written and I don't fault an actor for taking a job. But I am so glad we are now beyond, hopefully, the point where Hispanic actors are... Because this was probably... In terms of racial representation, there was the fact that Asians are basically invisible or stereotypes for sure. But, and Native Americans the same way. They were like shaman or whatever. But, but if you get to people where they actually created contract parts, I think my entire childhood and young adulthood and, and even really until now, the vast majority or at least a good 60% of Hispanic characters on daytime were played by people who did not identify as Hispanic, you know, whether it was Cruz's brother or or uh, or Maria on Sunset Beach, uh, uh, I loved all the actors. But yeah. if you if you can go from playing Maria on Sunset Beach to being the Molly recast on on As the World Turns, you know, as wonderful an actor as you are, was there not a Hispanic actor anywhere in Los Angeles who could have been cast on Sunset Beach? <laughs> you know, and then you look there at One Life to Live, who did it right. really right and with the Vegas, really well. They I think that's New York. Family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they New understood York. that in New York you could do that, you know. But yeah. you're telling me in LA you can't find Hispanic either, you know. In New York, the, yeah. the, like I think that the diversity is 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 celebrated in New York in a way it isn't in LA, particularly back in the 80s and 90s. Which is interesting and considering LA is predominantly is so diverse. But yeah. the California blonde ruled all in the 80s, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so I think the only thing I've had an issue with, and I've said this online. And and I think I think that the day's casting department is so fantastic that sometimes I feel nervous and not nervous. That's the wrong word. I'm very confident what I'm about to say, but I feel bad because there probably is a story. There probably is a reason and I don't know it. So I want to acknowledge that ahead of time. But I was very unhappy with the Ariana recast on um, when they aged her, when they saw Esther some on on Days of Our Lives, because, again, nothing against the actress. But there are so few Hispanic or part Hispanic parts on the show that to cast a blonde, blue-eyed actress, child actress, as Gabby's daughter really lost the opportunity. Now, not to say there aren't blonde, blue-eyed Hispanics, because there certainly are, but yeah. they lost the opportunity for people to see themselves on television. And and so and and it was the same time, around the same time they brought in Lynn Darnold, uh, you know, and and yeah. so I was saying you already have so many blondes. And, you know, I feel like Salem, Illinois has more blondes. It looks like California. You know what I mean? I watched recently the scene where Sammy confronts uh, Abigail about sleeping with EJ. And she exposes all of Abigail's dirty laundry in front of Jennifer. And <laughs> Allie Sweeney is brunette and gorgeous. I mean, it was, I had forgotten how beautiful, how stunningly beautiful and individual all of her features are popping because you know, when you're a California blonde, you look like so many other blondes, you know, 
And there's some people like Missy Reeves who should always, you know, she looks gorgeous. I mean, I think I love yeah, when she's rocking people, the That's too, their look. But like that's, Max. That's her Odell. look. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't mind playing with, with a darker shade. I remember when Kelly Ripa played with the darker shade, and it was very interesting. You know, in her first yeah. pregnancy when she didn't want to dye her hair. And, and, and I think that soaps sometimes forget, circling back to something that I, I forgot earlier, it wasn't the thing I forgot, but mm-hmm. could, could everyone stop pretending to be surprised or maybe just stop being surprised whenever a Patrika Darbo or a Kathy Breyer or, you know, a Trina or, or yeah. um, a Spinelli becomes a breakout character who people love and lasts for years because I'm yeah, so tired of people Bixie. writing. I love me some Spinelli. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm so tired of people writing these like, Oh, they're quirky, which just basically means that they don't look like conventional models. Right. And so, yeah. so what, so, so, you know, I'll never forget Patrika, who is one of my dear friends and I adore her. Patrika, in one of her early scenes, in one of her early scenes, she is talking with Kevin Spurtis, who played Craig at the time. And, and he, she turns to him and she says, well, if you want daddy's money, you're going to continue to blah, 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 blah. And I said, did they really write in a reason into the dialogue to explain why he, hot doctor, would be married to her? And I was so pissed. I was so pissed. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I, you know, now I, you know, since I was sick, I gained a lot of weight and learned a lot about what it was like to be, uh, uh, you know, someone who carries weight. But, but back then I was, you know, yeah. your typical. Mine has fluctuated jock, my but whole I, life. But I, yeah. <laughs> but I understood after I got sick and, and had the back injury, you know, it's never been the same. So I've gained a lot of empathy. But even then I understood that that wasn't right, you know, because I grew up in the military where there are a lot of really fit guys because it's a requirement of their job who have wives yeah. of all different sizes. You know, and and it really bothered me. And then eventually, though, Patricia's character became so popular. And she and and the fact that and she told me, she says, you know, she and Kevin didn't play it that way. They played it like these two people wanted to jump each other's bones. They did things like, you know, pinch her butt or giggle or flirt or touch each other. And eventually they got a bedroom and they would do they would do like sexual cosplay <laughs> and all these things. And people were like, it's amazing. Patrika Darbo is so wonderful. Well, Patrika Darbo most definitely is wonderful. Don't get me wrong about that. And yeah, she, she elevates the game of anything she's in. But the truth is, I know that there are women out there who've been who love sex, who have great sexual relationships with their husbands and and never see themselves and there were housewives all over America who never see a woman who looks like them, so to speak, on screen. So when they did, she became so popular, you know, and 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 rightfully so because she had the talent. Kathy Breyer, I remember when they brought Marcy on to One yeah. Night to Live. Jen was the hot, cute blonde, right? And Jen manipulated the the heavy set, um, you know girl who just who, who was like girl, oh my god Jen, yeah. you're so popular yeah you know who worked at the doctor's office to be elevating some fun ultimately and once again we like jessica morris she's a lovely person but it's kind yeah. of interesting that marcy outlasted marcy outlasted jennifer because yeah, on soaps I mean, there are a million jennifers right there are a million there's blonde hair to marcy's yeah right and so and and people identified and people were suddenly and suddenly marcy and all of you know Marcy ends up with um, Nathaniel Marston, and they become a super Yeah, Michael couple. Bagane, yeah. Right, and it was and it was exceptional. And the same thing with Spinelli as a male version. Spinelli was supposed to be dorky. He wasn't a model. He didn't have a great 
body. You know, I mean, in real life, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Spinelli was supposed to be a stoner. He had an unfashionable haircut. He had all these <laughs> sorts of things. But people like people like seeing realness. And if you want the proof of what I'm saying, go watch EastEnders. Go watch yeah, EastEnders. Yeah, all those people just uh, look the like the premier soap opera in Britain. Yeah. They, it's about yeah. a working class community yeah. on the east side of London where they have harsh yeah. accents and bad teeth. And, and yes, they look like and they look normal. Know, Hollywood versions, but they all, yeah. you know, Sharon, who's probably their main heroine has grown, you know, she's, she's heavy set. And all of these things look like our mothers, our sisters, our brothers, you know, our fathers, the guy, the, the computer guy at work. I'm all, I always laugh. Every, every computer guy on every procedural at some point will take his shirt off and be like a great time. You know, yeah, like his glasses and shirt will come off. You didn't have like, to. Yeah, sure, Jarpad. It's almost <laughs> a trope now, right? It's almost a trope. Why not cast someone who looks like a person? You know what I'm saying? And what you'll discover is plenty of people, you know, uh, you know, put Bradford Anderson's image on their wall. Because Hollywood's yeah. ideas of what's att are attractive is not what the rest of America's idea is what is attractive. You know, and so plenty of people find Bradford Anderson a straight up sex symbol. You know, yeah, plenty of women, like guys you know, like saw Doggins are sexy and, and oh. uh, Matthew Gray Goobler. Those guys are usually the weirdos or whatever. But I'm like, no, those right. guys are sexy as hell, just like Bradford. I love Spinelli. Exactly. Craig and yeah. Nancy on, on, you know, um, Craig and Nancy on Days of Our Lives were fired because they looked like America and he looked like he loved his wife, you know, and and because, mm -hmm. oh, in real life, we love people for looking like people. And and so I think I love when people are are unconventional, and I think that that's um, that does not mean not hot. That does not mean not attractive, as we have now proven. What it yeah. means is they are not they are not within that that mean that median where they say this is what is conventionally attractive, and so we will hire from here. That said, the new Lucas is exceptionally attractive. Dun dun dun. What a great part to cut it off at. Tune in to part two of my chat with Benjamin Bryant to find out if I think the new Lucas is hot too and our initial thoughts. As always, thank you for listening to Believe in Soap Operas. If you're not subscribed to the show, be sure to hit that button so you get new episodes each week in the feed of your favorite podcast again. Like us, rate us. Have something to say? Leave us a review. Or since I'm Lucretia Lyon, guys, you can always find me at L-A-C-R-E-T-I-A-L-Y-O-N anywhere on the internet since there is only one or keep up with my guest benjamin bryant at bz ben bryant thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube